Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Hello and welcome. Very nice to see so many of you. Um, my name's Lucretia Walker. I'm one of the three lay canons here. And uh, I'm here today to introduce Bishop Adrian, Bishop of Stepney, um, who's going to talk to us over the title of uh, Dancing in Lent. Just some words of introduction um, to our speaker today. Um, he is uh, ministering in the East End of London. He's very much our, our good neighbour. Um, and as an economist, before he was ordained, um, he knows something about the nitty-gritty and nuts and bolts of things that perhaps are you know, on a wider ambit than perhaps other clergy might have. Um, he's also very much an urban priest, curate at Forest Gate, uh, and then also working in inner city Birmingham um, and Sheffield too. And, uh, and uh, before becoming Dean of Rochester. So uh, now in Stepney, happily ensconced in Stepney, he's going to talk to us today um, about dancing in the dark. One thing that's quite been described of you is that you're very um, um, bishopy bishop, whatever that might mean. <laughs> so um, he's going to speak on the pattern of suffering uh, and resurrection, which we live through day by day over this next week. Um, this theme is at the very heart of Christianity and illuminates every aspect of our humanity. The plan is that he'll speak for about 30 minutes or so, and then there'll be time for questions and answers to him after that. So, over to you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Lucretia, very much indeed. It's good to be here. Um, I've not been in this room before, so it's a new experience for me as well. And um, so I don't know about being the, one of the most unbishopy like bishops, but I was once described as the most undean-like dean in the Church of England, which I was very proud of. <laughs> so maybe the most unbishop-like bishop. I haven't quite got there yet. Uh, the, there is nothing like being asked to speak on April Fool's Day. I won't take it personally, but I hope I won't make too much of a fool of myself. I want to talk a little bit about uh, moving into Holy Week and Easter and what this might mean for us. Lent. Don't you just love it? It's a depress fest. No flowers, no alleluias, cover everything up, subdue your enthusiasm, control your exuberance. It's a long, slow preparation for Christ's passion. No wonder we make such a big thing of Lent in the Church of England, because this is what we are so good at. Subdued passivity. We are in our absolute element. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that the passion of Christ is important. It is absolutely central to so many things I believe about life. And I have preached countless sermons about the passion of Christ down the years. Only last Sunday, I was at St. Mary's Stoke Newington preaching a sermon that was all about the passion of Christ and how his passion can bring unimaginable hope to those who experience something similar to Jesus in his loss of independence and control as he heads towards the cross. But each year we spend these six weeks focusing on that sort of thing relentlessly. And maybe since the action of Christ is as much part of the Christian message as the passion, just maybe we need to try and glimpse something different that we may be missing. So I'd like to invite you to be somewhat countercultural as we approach Holy Week and think about 
how and why we might end up dancing in the darkness of this coming week. What I propose to do for the next half an hour or so is to offer you a smorgasbord, a pick-and-mix selection of different thoughts and ideas about why Holy Week can also be a time for dancing. Let me begin with this. You don't have to be a musician to know how to distinguish a minor chord from a major chord. Minor chords are about pathos, tragedy and melancholy. They take you to a place of tears or lead you to a deep place of silence. Major chords are full of strength, power and happiness. Minor chords take you to the bottom of the valley, major chords to the top of the mountain. Major chords do the awe, minor chords the wonder. Christianity is traditionally hot on the minor chord stuff, as you might expect for a religion that is based around a man hanging on a cross. We do pain and suffering rather well. And countless millions of people draw strength from a God who is at home in the Valley of Tears. Praise God that he is. Without this, we would have nothing to say of any integrity about the situation in Syria or Burma or Gaza or countless other places of suffering around the world. But we're not quite so good at dancing. We're great at tracing that rainbow through the rain, but we don't do blue sky and sunshine quite so well. We're not really at home with prime numbers and primary colours. The music of Lent is played in a minor chord, as befits a word that sounds like a passive verb. Alleluias are banned from our liturgies. It's a period conceived in ashes and lived out in the dust. We fast, we deny ourselves. It is a time of preparation marked by that most contemporary of words, austerity. And yet it is one of the huge ironies of the liturgical year that we place this great emphasis on Lent, but apart from a brief outburst on Easter Day, we more or less totally ignore the resurrection. When did the Diocese of London last do a resurrection series? When did the Archbishop of Canterbury last publish a resurrection book? When did your church last run resurrection groups? We do Lent series, Lent books and Lent groups every year. What about giving the resurrection a look in for one year at least? It's almost as if we are happier with a faith that takes us through the valley of shadows, but we struggle with the mountains, with the enthusiasm, the ebullience and the confidence of an Easter faith. The philosopher Voltaire is supposed to have stood up after listening to one particular sermon and said to the preacher, preach me your certainties. I have enough doubts of my own. Christianity is to do with the certainty of an unexpected resurrection. It is a tale of tears and fears turned to joy. It is a positive message to be told in an active voice. We, of course, pay lip service to this. We talk a good game. The best example is probably the Eucharist, a service we celebrate each week or sometimes more, depending on your tradition. The very description of the word means thanksgiving, which is an upbeat, positive word, if ever there was one. 
But I can't help get the feeling each week as we gather for the Eucharist that our emphasis is more on the death than on the resurrection of Christ. Lift up your hearts, the priest says in the middle of the service, as if up until that moment they've just been sort of dragging along the floor. When did you last hear the liturgical commission consider the inclusion of a rubric to calm down, hush the merry chatter and stop swinging from the chandeliers? Last year marked the um, 50th anniversary of the death of a man described by President John F. Kennedy as the greatest statesman of the 20th century. Dag Hammarskjöld, who died in mysterious circumstances in a plane crash in 1961 when he was Secretary General of the United Nations. To celebrate this anniversary last year, I bought myself a copy of his posthumously published diary, Markings, which represents a searingly honest personal insight into this most private and remarkable of men who, away from the public gaze or the institutional church, quietly devoted himself to the service of God in all that he did. Hammarskjöld is eminently quotable, um, and I filled pages of a notebook at home with his pithy sayings. But perhaps his most famous phrase is one that blows all of this latent Christian negativity away. You all know it, I'm sure. For all that has been, thanks. For all that will be, yes. That's not a bad magnet to put on your fridge, not a bad banner to hang from your church, not a bad epitaph to have on your grave. For all that has been, thanks. For all that will be, yes. I'm a great fan of the Love Life Live Lent approach from Church House Publishing and the many different suggestions for how to incorporate something positive into our Lenten um, uh, celebration rather than to cut out something negative. This seems a much more positive, can-do approach to Lent, more in keeping with Hammarskjöld's yes to life. Maybe it's human nature or perhaps it's something peculiarly British, but either way, our preoccupation with Lenten negativity strikes me as odd. Yes is a much more Christian word than no. But before you start getting the wrong impression, I am utterly complicit in this. There is a common psychological technique. You may have even exposed yourself to this over the years. It's used to help people change the pattern of their lives. It consists of getting someone to spend time imagining themselves at their own funeral. Who would be there? What would people say about you? How would their words reflect the person that you represented to them? And how would you like it to be different? Done well, this slightly morbid exercise, I grant you, offers a powerful insight into the world of our own psyche. For me, there was one uncomfortable but unavoidable conclusion. I sense intuitively that at my funeral, a number of people might talk about their respect for me, my principles, my integrity, my logical and controlled approach to matters of life and faith. But the uncomfortable truth for me is not many people would talk about their love for me. It's not necessarily that I lack emotional intelligence, although I often joke about this with my closest friends and family. I'm simply not a very emotional person. 
as a strength, this expresses itself in stability. I'm someone you can generally depend on. As a weakness, it shows its face in a lack of spontaneity and passion and a missing dimension in human relationships. And one implication of all this is that, despite all that I have said so far, I do not do celebration particularly well. I don't know if you've heard of the Jewish author Chaim Potoch. He wrote in the uh, late 60s and early 70s a series of novels about the relationship between Orthodox and Reformed Judaism. They were called The Chosen, The Promise, and The Book of Lights. This is The Promise. He explored the conflict between orthodoxy and the world of new theological ideas emerging in the 1960s from a Jewish perspective. His books are well worth revisiting in the light of our own conflicts in the Anglican Communion today. There's a wonderful passage towards the end of The Promise, where, the, where a father and a son, raised in the Reformed tradition, have been invited to a tenaim, an engagement ceremony for two Orthodox Jews. It turns out to be a wonderful, joyful occasion with lots of music and dancing and fun and laughter. And at the end of it, the father and the son sit reflecting on their experience. And the father says this to his son. They are remarkable people. There is so much about them that is distasteful to me, but they are remarkable people. I wish they weren't so afraid of new ideas, says Reuven, the son. Ah, you want a great deal, Reuven. Will new ideas enable them to go on singing and dancing? We can't ignore the truth, Abba. No, he said. We cannot ignore the truth. At the same time, we cannot quite sing and dance as they do. That is the dilemma of our time. The problem with minor chord Christianity is that it can have a tendency to suck all the joy and celebration out of faith. It can end up too cerebral, too left-brained. The spiritual dilemma of our time in a world where the globe has shrunk, and if I can express it in these terms, the spiritual dilemma of our time is how to live in a world of ambiguity, suffering and pain without losing the ability to party. Let me come at this from a slightly different angle. I called this talk on something of a whim, dancing in the dark, and whims are all, almost always dangerous. There's too much time to repent at your leisure. The problem with this title is I do not know the first thing about dancing. And I have two left feet. And despite a while ago being in possession of a red-letter day voucher entitling me to a day's tuition in salsa, I had absolutely no intention of redeeming it. <laughs> but dance as a metaphor for faith is as old as the hills. There is something in the metaphor of a dance that speaks of a, of a relationship, almost a struggle, between order and spontaneity, between self-control and abandonment, between pattern and passion. And all of those things are involved in dancing. 
Each of us will have a natural inclination to live our lives and express our faith towards one end of that spectrum or another. I wonder where you would place yourself. I'm someone who could have written the instruction manual on order, pattern, and self-control. And while that has served me well in many areas of life, it is only as I've got a bit older, I have come to realize how significantly it has also diminished my experience of life and faith. If learning to dance is a metaphor for learning how to shape our lives in a sort of symbiotic movement with God, entering into an intimate and close cooperative relationship with God as our dance partner, allowing ourselves to adapt to his contours and flow with his initiative, marking out a pattern that is choreographed by the Spirit, then it will entail finding the right balance between order and spontaneity, self-control and abandonment, pattern and passion. And for me, this will mean learning about committing myself to and experimenting with spontaneity, abandonment and passion. I've brought along Lolita. I'm told you don't often have props at these <laughs> events, so here's a prop for the first time ever at a St. Paul's Forum event. Lolita, a picture of a, a flamenco dancer I bought in Spain a few years back. It's a brilliant picture, I think, captures so much of the strength, the passion and the emotion of flamenco. And I keep Lolita on the wall of my study. I have to say, Often people arriving in a bishop's study expect something slightly more religious than this. <laughs> I keep it there to remind me that I need to discover the hidden flamenco inside me. On the opposite wall, <clears throat> I keep a sombrero. <clears throat> There's a lovely poem by Wallace Stevens which speaks to me because I think I'm something of a rationalist. It goes like this. Rationalists, wearing square hats, think in square rooms, looking at the floor, looking at the ceiling. They confine themselves to right-angled triangles. If they tried rhomboids, cones, waving lines, ellipses, as, for example, the ellipse of the half-moon, rationalists would wear sombreros. <laughs> rationalists, like me, are a bit angular in our thinking and living. It's easy to value logic over meaning. So I keep a sombrero in my study to remind me to loosen up a bit. I've been told of an old Mediterranean saying, that we dance because we cannot fly. I need to find a bit of that liberation. But for others, with opposite characters to mine, learning to dance will lead you in a different direction, into the uncharted waters of order, self-control, and pattern, which will be just as uncomfortable for you as those waters are for me. My hunch is that there are more people in the churches like me who have to work at the major chords, 
surrender themselves to celebration, risk themselves to swim in the river rather than sit on the rock. And if you're different, if you're a born natural at celebration, then for goodness sake, step out of the shadows and make your contribution as strongly as you can because the church needs you. And don't worry, because the rest of us will teach you about pain and suffering soon enough. (laughs) Perhaps there is one further point to be made here concerning the metaphor of a dance. It's easy to assume that dancing is all about noise, movement, activity and motion. But in my observation, it's not. I'm much more of a sportsman than a dancer. And I've noticed that in the most sublime and perfect sporting moments, Maradona's wonder goal against England in the 1986 World Cup, the second, not the first, Roger Federer's backhand, Tiger Woods driving a golf ball, Johnny Wilkinson's World Cup winning drop goal against Australia in the final minute of the 2003 World Cup, there is an extraordinary sense of stillness in what is happening, almost a slow motion effect that is something to do with balance and poise, timing, and what I can only call centeredness. And you see exactly the same thing in dance of all forms, from strictly come dancing to rock and roll, from break dancing to ballet, a poise, a balance, a timing that conveys a sense of a still center around which all of the beautiful movement is taking place, indeed without which it simply could not take place. T.S. Eliot has a famous phrase, at the still point of the turning world, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. So the metaphor of life as a dance isn't just about being noisy and brash, outgoing and extrovert. There's something vitally important about discovering the silence at the centre of a major chord. What along another book, which is a favourite of mine, written by a former Dean of Westminster, now sadly um, dead, Michael Main. The book is called Learning to Dance. And uh, let me read you out a quote from Michael Main. Prayer takes many forms, but I have come to understand the heart of it as a disciplined taking of time to remind ourselves of who we are and whose we are in which the one necessary element is stillness, which is why this simple contemplation is often so demanding, constantly at war with our spinning thoughts, this waiting quietly on the God who is the dynamic stillness at the heart of the universe and therefore at the heart of the dance. God who is the dynamic stillness at the heart of the universe and therefore at the heart of the dance. I mention this because I don't want you to get me wrong. It's easy to assume that a talk encouraging us towards a more major chord way of living, particularly in Lent, is just an attempt to get people up out of their seats, tambourine in hand, clapping along to come on and celebrate. But if life is like a dance, then dancing involves both abandoned motion and controlled movement. And both are going to require a certain stillness if we are to dance well. Learning to dance is not all spontaneity and improvisation. 
It's not just about giving in to an abandoned passion. It is also about discipline, pattern, measurement, and stillness. It combines the two. Perhaps above all, this expresses itself in making space for spiritual reflection within our lives. So one last prop. Another hat. (laughs) Uh, This is my um, spiritual Lenten icon. It's my cycling helmet. I was going to bring my bike along, but I decided I couldn't get it on the tube. Um, This is the helmet I wore when I fulfilled a lifelong ambition the summer before last and cycled from Land's End to John O'Groats. The ever-quotable T.S. Eliot elsewhere in the Four Quartets coined a famous phrase that resonates so strongly with modern life when he said, we had the experience but missed the meaning. We had the experience but missed the meaning. When I did my Land's End to John O'Groats ride... (laughs) I could have had that saying written over the front of my helmet. I had the experience, but missed the meaning. For me, those thousand miles were a form of living hell. (laughs) Every waking moment was taken up with the ride. Wake at 6.30, shower, dress, hydrate, breakfast, maintenance, check, set off, cycle up endless hills in the wind and rain for the next eight hours, arrive, eat, collapse, shower, eat again, route plan, pack for the next day, more maintenance checks, listen to the weather forecast, weep silently when you realise it is yet more wind and yet more rain, go to bed but lie awake, legs twitching, dreading getting back on the bike in the morning. Every moment of every day for the whole of that ride, I was focused on one thing and one thing alone, what came next? Apart from writing a very brief daily blog, I did not for a single moment look back at where I'd come from and reflect on where I'd been. I was always looking ahead. I had the experience, but I missed the meaning. It was only as I drove back the day after I finished that I realised what a long way I'd come. Only as I spent the next 24 hours slowly reliving my experiences and writing them up in a journal that I began to understand the significance of what had happened to me. And as I reflected on that experience, I realised that it represented symbolically much of the way that I tended to live my life. Land's End to John O'Groats became a sort of acted parable for me, a distressing insight into the limitations of an approach to life which always looks forwards and never looks back, having all manner of experiences, but so often missing the meaning. So my bike my cycling helmet. My bike is a reminder to me, along with Lolita and my sombrero, that if I am going to do some dancing with God, I need to loosen up a bit and learn to reflect on the landscape of my life's journey a bit more. As Lucretia said, I was Dean of Rochester before I became Bishop of Stepney, and the cathedral I served there was dedicated to Christ and the Blessed Virgin Mary. I am really glad that Mary was our patron, not least because of that wonderful little verse tucked away at the heart of the Christmas story, where we are told that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. In many ways, Mary is the icon of a reflective spirituality. 
you do get the impression, reading the accounts of Mary in the Bible, that she was somebody who had a habit of treasuring things in her heart, of pondering them, of thinking about them at the end of each day. She was used to looking back, to reflecting, to allowing things to rest with her and remain with her. And I think that was a pattern that she instilled in her son, Jesus, who we often see taking time out to pray or walk or talk or share meals, all of which are times of reflecting on experience, chewing the cud of the stuff of life in order to extract the goodness of meaning. The ancient monastics, who we increasingly discover were not hopelessly out of touch recluses with no real understanding of normal life, but people of deep wisdom, blazing a trail of living that remains hugely significant to our modern world. They developed a way of looking back over the day just lived, slowly, quietly, and reflectively drawing out the significant moments. They called it the examen, a technique of prayerful reflection on the events of the day in order to detect God's presence and discern God's direction. Jesuits practice the examen to this day at noon and at the end of every day. And Christians of all traditions are beginning to grasp the importance of this if we are to become grounded and rounded human beings. Learning to dance is a conscious process. It requires us to stop and make space for dancing lessons. It requires daily practice. And the dance of life is every bit as much to do with recapturing this disciplined emphasis as it is to do with spontaneity and improvisation. I'm going to draw towards a close now, but let me return to one earlier point. It's about suffering and pain. It's very easy to skate over the surface of a subject like this and spin everything with a major chord, whereas we have to acknowledge that for many people, if not most people, life is experienced as a minor chord for most of the time. I mentioned Michael Main's book, Learning to Dance. He has a chapter in that book from which I took the title of this talk, which he calls Dancing in the Dark. If the dance of life is to have any meaning, it must address issues of pain, cruelty, and suffering. It must be able to live with and to make sense of a world that is at one and the same time shot through with matchless, constantly renewed beauty, and one that is witness to intolerable pain. It must be able to understand, and indeed to experience suffering, in a way that makes sense of a powerful, loving God and responsible, free human beings. It must do this with searing honesty. You cannot give soft answers to hard questions. I'm going to read a reasonably long quote from Michael Main in a second, which comes very close to the, the famous Malcolm Muggeridge saying about suffering. Are you familiar with it? Malcolm Muggeridge once said, imagine a world without suffering. What a terrible place. This is what Michael Main says. Suffering gives rise to that most godlike and otherwise inexplicable of our qualities, compassion. 
This is the key that can unlock the logical impasse of God's omnipotence versus God's love. Compassion means literally to suffer alongside. And in what Christians call the incarnation, God does just that. That is the mystery to cap all mysteries, the bringing together in a single human life of the divine and the human, revealing the ultimate power and meaning of self-giving love. And it has the power to create light in the darkness. It is the belief that we cannot solve the riddle of undeserved suffering. That however hard we press into the darkness, God does not, indeed cannot, give us answers. Instead, he does something infinitely more radical. He enters with us into the questions. The section that follows in Learning to Dance is, I think, a masterclass in the theology of love, suffering, and pain. It emerges from that tradition in Christian spirituality that suffering, when permeated by love, can have creative and indeed redemptive power. In the spirit of an anonymous first century author, it says, when I light a candle at midnight, I say to the darkness, I beg to differ. (laughs) Facing the darkness, challenging it with love, can turn the destructive power of evil into good. So if Good Friday is about suffering and pain and death. If Easter Saturday is about bewilderment, bereavement and fear, then Easter Sunday is about transformation, joy, happiness and life. And that pattern, that pattern of Good Friday through Easter Saturday to Easter Sunday is in my view, a spiritual template given to all of us as human beings, applicable to every single experience we face in our lives. How else do you account for the amazing resilience of human beings? It's only as I get older that I begin to see how often you face something in life which you feel is going to crush you, only to look back sometime later and realize that you have survived it. Indeed, more than survived it, you have risen above it. It may be horrible and painful at the time, but you get through it. It may bruise you, damage you, and change you. You may always carry the scars, as did Christ. But it does not overcome you. Somewhere, somehow, deep within the tomb of your darkest night, the divine spark jumps out of the darkness and re-energizes you with life and with hope. The thing about Good Fridays is you can never go round them. You can only go through them. When you experience suffering, life will never return to normal and get back to how it was before. But resurrection also leaves you changed, different, and in a new place. It did for Jesus. It did for the disciples it will for us. Christianity is a religion of hope. And this is not just the power of positive thinking. Christianity is a belief in the power of the resurrection to transform the whole of life. That template 
is something we can bring to everything we face. And I have to challenge myself, of course I do. Can I say this and look the Syrian people in the eye as they face the terror of civil war? Can I say it to the French mother who has seen her son cut down by a zealot's bullet? Can I look my former secretary in the face when she has just been diagnosed with motor neurone disease and still say this? Can I look into the eyes, as I did just last week, of a man who has weeks to live and proclaim that Christianity is a religion of hope? For all that it is difficult to do so, I still say yes. This pattern, this template of suffering redeemed is at the heart of all of life. Because of Easter Day, Good Friday is not the last day of the week. Suffering is not the last word. And if I ever open a restaurant chain, I am going to call it TGI Sunday. <laughs> when I was a young Christian, I remember reading a book by Merlin Carruthers called From Prison to Praise. It was about the power of praise and thanksgiving to unlock us from all of our negative prisons. I have found time and time again throughout my life that the most powerful thing you can do at your lowest point is to give thanks. It is transformational because it lifts you up and lifts you out. It takes you away from Golgotha to the cool misty morning of the garden tomb and the fleeting glimpse of a familiar presence. It holds out the promise so gloriously expressed by the mystic Julian of Norwich that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And that's why Lent, for all of its emphasis on the passion and suffering of Christ, does not just have to weep with those who weep. It can also be a time and a place to learn how to dance. Because we are an Easter people and resurrection is our song, we can learn to dance to the song of life begin to sing in a major key and proclaim Dag Hammarskjöld's wonderful yes to all of life. Thank you very much. I mean, I don't know how much people heard that. So this is... It's a, the question is to do with the, that sort of touching point between suffering and joy, um, the Easter Saturday moment, the, the, the bewildered centre or fulcrum between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And sort of supplementary question, is suffering something to be welcomed? Is that... Or, or, or loved. Or, or loved. Is it something yeah. to be overcome? Yeah. I mean, they're like... Um, Easter Saturday, I think, is the least developed day of our liturgical year, and, and underrated. Uh, I really do think somebody, somebody at the liturgical commission ought to do something with Easter Saturday. It's sort of a bit lost. It's that day we, you know, we just go out to Sainsbury's and you know, get our shopping in and the, go and buy our any cheap hot cross buns from the day before. Whereas actually that point that pivotal point where you are exposed to suffering without any apparent hope of resurrection is, I think, the place where many of us feel 
we experience that on a, on a, sometimes on a daily basis. And certainly if you're in the grip of uh, an illness or if you're anxious about your future or on a much larger scale, if you are in a refugee camp in Syria, you're, you're, you're at the Easter Saturday moment. You're just experiencing the suffering. And if anybody were to talk about the promise of resurrection, that's really, really hard. Do we need to love it? That's a difficult word to use about pain and suffering, isn't it? Um, I, I, I f well, you can, see, you can see it as fulfilling a purpose. I mean, I think we embrace it is probably the word I want to. And embra you know, an embrace can be a loving embrace or it can be quite a tentative embrace. I think it's something we have to accept as an experience of life. But in the embrace of it, it becomes an act of trust and an act of hope that this is not the final word on the situation that we're facing. Um, I, my uh, pectoral cross is um, the, a Canterbury cross, and if people are familiar with the Canterbury cross, this is a roundabout way of trying to answer your question. The, the thing about the Canterbury cross is this, it's composed of eight segments, and Eight in the Bible is a very significant number. It's seven, the perfect number, plus one. So in other, it's often used as the number of resurrection in the Bible, the number of renewal, of something new happening and emerging. So I love the fact that here is a cross which speaks of death, which holds within it the seeds of something new. So this is the, this, the Canterbury cross is both death and resurrection in the same place. And it seems to me that when we're going through some of the toughest things we experience in life, it's, it's somehow being able to embrace those, knowing that they hold within them the seeds of resurrection and the seeds of something which might make us stronger and better than we are at the moment. But that is not to deny the pain and the difficulty that it's going, that it's going to cost us to, to go through that. I think it's just about seeing every situation we face with hope as well as an understanding of the pain. We've, the pain is in our face, isn't it? The hope is sort of one step removed often. Uh, it's not a very good example. It's probably not pr as practical an answer as you'd have liked. Okay. I'll keep thinking. Well. I'll, keep, <laughs> I'll keep thinking. I think it's those things which give life its fullness. Those are the sort of things we can bring in. Um, I think uh, laughter and love and colour and music and art. I think movement is actually very important. I mean, one of the things I, lo I love about what you've just suggested, a very practical suggestion, is that you could, you're bringing people in, people are active, they're contributing something. Often our worship is a bit passive, isn't it? We you know, sit down, stand up, open this, sing that. And I've always, in the parishes that I've led, and indeed in the cathedral, tried to encourage movement because that's part of the expression of the fullness of our, of our humanity. I'd love to see some reflection on the Saturday attached to that gathering of people to decorate the church for the following day. That could be very powerful to bring those two things together, those sort, that sort of idea. I just want to link a few things together. I was minded when you talked about Rochester and the dedication to the Virgin Mary of another saint, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, speaking about brother sun, sister moon, and brother disease and sister death, and that these were things that we should embrace and that we should live with. 
and minded also of another thought of suffering. I recently met a woman whose 10-year-old son had died of an aggressive brain tumour and was uh, very uh, intrigued at how she had dealt with this, how she felt she had lived a whole life with his dying and how rather than be taken down with it, somehow through suffering, it had given her an extraordinary celebratory moment of life and the thing what we know is going to come to us all of death and beyond. She was an extraordinarily kind of deeply spiritually positive person. So thinking about those, those elements, I wanted to end by, well, thanking you very much indeed for those observations and how we should all be dancing in Lent. Thank you very much, Bishop. Thank you.